Good morning, Lake Murray. Uh, hope that you have had a wonderful Thanksgiving week. Uh, thankful to have the opportunity to gather together this morning to sing songs of praise, to hear God's word proclaimed, see one another. If you have your Bible, hope that you do. Would you open it with me to the book of First John as we continue in our series this morning? Uh, it is an uh, exciting season as we begin the Advent season uh, today, today is the first Sunday of Advent where we celebrate the first coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and anticipate his second coming during this season. Thankful to have the opportunity to begin in this way today. Uh, a friend of mine I saw this week, uh, another pastor friend of mine, uh, was tweeting out about uh, Advent, and he just said, hey, uh, uh, does anybody know what the weeks, kind of the themes of Advent weeks are? I'm getting conflicting answers on the internet. And I thought, you know, I think I'm getting conflicting answers on the internet could be added to the end of every question ever, right? Like, I, I, there are lots of opinions and, and thoughts, and even on things that seem simple, like we're getting conflicting answers on the internet. And, and we do live in a little bit of a confusing time. We live in the era of fake news. And we've just all walked through this for the last several years. How can you trust the reliability of what you're receiving? Uh, there's a really interesting um, website that I came across. It was actually put together by a Clemson University media professor. And I hesitate to mention Clemson University this morning on the morning of our great sorrow. Uh, however, it was put together by a Clemson uh, communication media professor. Uh, it's called spotthetroll.org. And basically what he's done is he's, you know, it, it, we've seen this over the last several years. Uh, there, there are lots of kind of real, true social media accounts, but then there are also fake social media accounts. And a lot of those times, those fake social media accounts are used to kind of stir up division or kind of push an agenda. And, and he's kind of created this resource where you can go to this website and take a test that kind of walks through kind of some of the signs of how you know whether or not this is a, a actual person or whether it is a troll. And this kind of goes back to some information or I guess a piece of advice that my grandmother used to give me. My grandmother used to always say, consider the source. You know, have you heard that? Consider the source. Like if you hear something, think about where it's coming from. And so we all kind of have to do that today, right? When we receive information, we've got to consider the source. And to consider the source, we've got to look at the intention. We've got to understand, what's the purpose of this? Is this to inform? Is it promoting something? Is there an agenda here? Is it just someone trying to cause division? And as Christians, as people of the truth, it is incredibly important in this day and age to our public witness that we are not knowingly or unknowingly spreading or sharing disinformation, especially in an age where objective truth is under attack. And something similar is happening here this morning in 1 John chapter 4. We've been reading through the letter of 1 John, and we know that the churches here in Ephesus are divided over doctrine. And that several false teachings and teachers had come into, crept into the church and begun to teach things that were in contradiction to the word of God. And so the church finds themselves confused over these conflicting messages that they're hearing. And the conflicting messages are primarily about Jesus. And the false teachers are beginning to ask these questions and beginning to confuse the believers into thinking, is Jesus really the Messiah? Was Jesus a divine being who only pretended to be human? Was he a human being that somehow 
became divine? Is salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, or is it from also some of our own work or righteousness? Is there some special knowledge that I need to attain before I can trust Jesus? All of these things were beginning to be taught within the church, and John has a burden for the people in Ephesus. And he wants to address this morning the false teachings and the teachers who have sought to deceive the church. And he commends to the church that they consider the source. Who or what is behind the teaching that they are hearing? And he asks them and he commands them to compare it to what they already know to be true. And so my hope this morning is that as we continue in this letter, in the study of God's word, we would grow both in our ability to identify false gospels when we hear them and to also come to more fully appreciate the true gospel that we've received. So if you have your Bible, 1 John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now isn't in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that this morning that you would help us to discern between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Father, that we would see Jesus this morning exalted in the word. God, as we study this passage, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive that which you have for us by your spirit through your word. We give this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the comments that you or some may receive about studying the letter of 1 John is that it seems like, on the surface, John is kind of all over the place. Right? It seems like John is kind of jumping from one thing to the next. It's almost like he's got theological ADHD, right? He's just kind of hopping from here to here, and he's kind of stringing together all of these random thoughts. For example, our passage this morning kind of falls in an interesting place because we've just spent the last two weeks, John, talking about how important it is to love one another, how love is a result of right uh, belief and practical obedience, And in the next back half of chapter four, we'll see this next week, John goes back to this idea of how important it is that we love one another as believers in Christ. But right here, smack in the middle of his section about how important it is to love, we've got six verses about false teachings and false teachers. And so it seems like on the surface, this is John kind of running off on a rabbit trail, but that's not true. Because John, although he does not follow the same kind of clear outline that, say, the Apostle Paul does in his letter, John is not randomly throwing ideas together. As we saw in the introduction to the book, John is kind of weaving this rich theological tapestry in his approach to encourage the church. 
And this, I think, is actually another one of those places where the chapter and verse divisions actually kind of hinder us rather than help us. Now, we've talked about this. The Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God, right? So every word of the Bible is true and proves to be true. But the chapter and verse divisions were not inspired by God. They were actually added into the Bible later. And in lots of places, they are very helpful. But I think that here, they actually can hinder us from seeing the completeness or the transition of John's thought. Look at the end of chapter three. Look at the last verse of chapter three in verse 24. Here's what John says. He's concluding this idea of the social test, the test of love. He says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Now this is the first explicit mention of the Holy Spirit in John's letter. The spirit has been assumed or inferred in other places, but John makes clear here to his readers that it is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer that is the assurance of their salvation. Now, this is the theme of the entire letter. John wants them to be certain that they have been saved. And in order to do that, he wants to provide assurance of the genuineness of their faith in forms of tests. And so John has laid out these three tests that the believers are to apply to their own heart to see whether or not their faith is genuine. We've been talking about these the last several weeks. First, we have the doctrinal test, the test of truth. Are they believing what is true about Jesus? Secondly, we have the moral test, the test of righteousness. Does their right belief lead to right living? And third, we have the social test, the test of love, that the result of right belief and personal righteousness is love for one another. And John says that if we see the evidence of these things in our heart and our life, to believe rightly about Jesus, to walk in obedience to his commands, to love one another, that we're growing in these things, not that we're practicing them perfectly, but that we are progressively growing in each of these areas, John says that that is evidence that the Spirit of God is alive and at work in our hearts that if the Spirit of God is alive and at work in our hearts, we can be assured that our faith is genuine. But what John does here is interesting because he explicitly mentions the Holy Spirit, the Spirit as the assurance of our faith. But then he says, but beloved, do not believe every spirit. Now this is interesting here. Because as we discussed at the close of last week, love and truth are closely linked together in the scriptures. That we cannot love people in the way that the scriptures call us to love one another apart from a knowledge of the truth. And so John wants to focus this morning on this truth. He knows the church will not be able to love one another truly unless they have a knowledge of God's word. And they will not have a knowledge of God's word unless they are filled with God's spirit. And so he wants to ask the question, where does truth come from? How do we arrive at the knowledge of the truth? Because we will not be able to fulfill the command to love if we don't have a knowledge of the truth. And John says we have God's word, which expresses the truth to us but that the word is not the only resource we have. 
and that actually the word is not sufficient to, to, to show us truth apart from the spirit of God. This is how we know that arrival at the truth is not merely just an intellectual exercise. It is actually a spiritual work. And John writes, the confusion and division in the church is not merely just an intellectual agreement about what the Bible means, but it is actually spiritual warfare. He says that much of the confusion and division in the church is caused by competing spirits who are seeking to convince and win the hearts and minds of the people in the congregation. And so this morning, I just want to ask two questions of the text. I know you thought I'd ask three, but I'm pressed for time this morning, so I only got two, okay? Two questions of the text. First is this, what is the church commanded to do? And secondly, how does the church discern between the spirit of God and the spirits of the world? What is the church commanded to do, and how does the church discern between the spirit of God and the spirits of the world? John takes time in between talking about love to again dig down into the spirit of truth. And as we ask these questions, what we're going to see this morning is this. John wants the people to see that the spirit of God and the word of God will always exalt the son of God to the people of God. That the Spirit of God and the Word of God will exalt the Son of God to the people of God. John wants to make this explicitly clear so that the church might be the people God has called them to be and do the things that He's called them to do. Let's begin here. What does John command the church? What is the church commanded to do? Verse 1 Beloved, do not believe every spirit. So here, John moves from talking about the Holy Spirit to referencing the other spirits that are at work in the world. And John assumes that his readers, his first century audience, already believes in a spiritual realm. Now, I, this is not something that we could probably just assume here in the 21st century, right? Post-enlightenment, uh, the, the assumption that everyone believes that there is another spiritual realm at work that we cannot see that's not something we can just assume. Many of you in this room this morning, some of you in this room this morning may not even believe that. You may just say, I don't want to talk about all this spiritual stuff. Talk about the things that I can see. But John assumes that his readers believe in a spiritual realm because the Bible teaches that there is a spiritual realm. There is a world that we see and experience, and there is another world that we do not see, but we are often deeply influenced by. Though we cannot see it, the physical and the spiritual realms are deeply connected. And the spiritual realm plays a deeply influential role in the physical world. We saw this back a couple months ago when we studied the letters of John to the churches in Revelation. John almost wants to kind of peel back the curtain between heaven and earth, if you will, and show what's happening behind the curtain. He wants the people to see, the churches to understand that the curtain between heaven and earth is not as thick as they think that it is, that there are things happening in the spiritual realm that have direct influence on our world. And John writes that just as the Spirit of God is working to empower those who are children of God, so there are other spirits at work in the world who are empowering those who are children of the world. John Stott, the great theologian, says that behind every prophet is a spirit, and behind every spirit is either God or the devil. 
And Stott here, I think, gives expression to what John is saying. He's saying, don't believe everyone who comes and says, thus saith the Lord. But he says, test the spirits at the end of verse one to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, the context here is important for us to understand because you see the churches were gathering together, not like this in the sense that they would come together in a large building, hundreds of believers, but actually they were gathering most likely in homes. And they were only gathering at about 20 or 30 people per gathering. And when a letter like 1 John would uh, be written, it would be passed from congregation to congregation to congregation. And oftentimes these congregations would have someone who would come and would speak a word of prophecy or would speak, uh, who, who claimed to speak under apostolic authority or under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Now, the believers would receive this teaching and they would not always have like easy access to John or to one of the other apostles. Now, oftentimes, sometimes John would send messengers or those who would come to the church who would carry a message from him. But in often instances, when someone would stand to say something, to preach, to speak a word of prophecy in the name of the Lord, the church had to determine whether what they were hearing from the one who was speaking to them was in alignment with what they knew to be true. And this is how the false teaching is kind of spreading through the church. There were many who came claiming to speak under apostolic authority or under divine inspiration who were not at all preaching the gospel that John had proclaimed to these believers. And these false messengers with their false messages were confusing the church. And so John here warns the church that any message they receive from anyone who claims to speak for the Lord ought to be compared to the standard of truth that they have already received in the gospel of Jesus Christ. John writes that many false prophets have gone out into the world and he does not want the church to be deceived by false teaching and false teachers. And so this is the command to test the spirit, to hold it up against the standard of God's word. How does the church discern between the spirit of God and the spirits of the world? This brings us to our second point, the test. How do we discern between the the spirit of God and the spirits of the world? And John, as he is prone to do, I think provides a test for the believers to determine whether the message they have heard is from God or from the world. Here's the first test. John says, what does the Spirit teach? What do they teach? Look at what he says in verse two. By this you know the Spirit of God. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, John's response here is pretty simple. In a way, what he's saying is, what does the spirit teach us about Christ? Now, notice that he doesn't say, does the spirit simply confess Christ? Does the spirit simply mention Christ? But he has a very specific thing that he's looking for. He says, does the spirit confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Now, there is a significance to this statement. Has Christ come 
in the flesh. What is the significance to the idea that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? And this goes to the heart of much of what the early church was disputing here in Ephesus. Much of their dispute was coming around who Jesus actually was. Some had begun to teach that Jesus was a divine being who only pretended or appeared to be human, that he was God, but he was not man. Others were claiming in the church that Jesus was a man who for a season of his life was indwelled by the Spirit of God and became divine at his baptism, but then at his crucifixion, the Spirit of God was lifted off of him. So he was a man, but he was not God. And both of these heresies had begun to gain traction in the early church. But John says that neither of those are true. John says that the message of the gospel is that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. The theological idea behind this is the idea of what we call the incarnation, that God himself became flesh, that he put on skin and bone and became a human being, meaning that whatever it means to be God, he is, and whatever it means to be human, he was. Now, you may say, well, what's the significance of the incarnation? I'm glad that you asked. You see, if Jesus were God, but not man, he could not have died for our sins. But if Jesus were man, but not God, his death would be of no eternal value. You see, only Jesus as the God-man, only Jesus as God incarnate, only Jesus Christ is uniquely positioned to provide salvation for sinners. And he couldn't do it if he was man but not God. And he couldn't do it if he was God but not man. But he can if he is fully God and fully man. You see, only Jesus as the God-man has the power in his life, death, and resurrection to save us from sin. Later, uh, several centuries later, uh, Athanasius, who is one of the early church fathers, he was the bishop of Alexandria, wrote a tremendous little book called On the Incarnation, which I, I would actually commend to you during this Advent season. Now listen, it's not a light read, but it is a tremendous theological treatise on the importance of the incarnation. And in his book, On the Incarnation, Athanasius wrote this about Jesus, the God-man. He says, for now that he has come to our realm and has taken up his abode in one body among his peers, henceforth the whole conspiracy of the enemy against mankind is checked. And the corruption of death, which before was prevailing against them, is done away. For the race of men had gone to ruin, had not the Lord and Savior of all, the Son of God, come among us to meet the end of death. John says to those who are in the church, what do those who are among you profess about Jesus Christ? Does the Spirit teach that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God? whose life, death, and resurrection is the only way of salvation? Or does it proclaim a Jesus that the scriptures are not familiar with? John says that many will come to you and teach you false things about Jesus 
And he calls these things what they are. He says this, the end of verse three, this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have now overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now here again, John refers to the spirit of the Antichrist. If you go back several weeks at the end of chapter two, John talks to us about this spirit of Antichrist. We've talked about what that is. He's not talking about the the Antichrist, the one who will come at the end, who will deceive, uh, but he's talking about the spirit of Antichrist, which means the spirit that is against Jesus, the spirit that is at work to oppose the Father. He says that these spirits who come claiming to speak on Jesus or the Lord's behalf, but then teach false things about him are not from God, but they are actually anti-Christ. And he says the purpose of anti-Christ is to deceive. And that the way that they would deceive is not by completely denying Jesus, but by misrepresenting him. You see, if the false teachers had come into the church and they had said, no, 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 don't worry about this Jesus character. Like he doesn't have anything to do with anything. Think about this. Then the church would recognize that teaching is a false teaching. But what the false teachers were doing is they were creeping into the church and they were taking an aspect of Jesus or a part of Jesus and they were attaching it to something else or they were stripping Jesus of something that was essential to his work as the Messiah, and they were presenting this new kind of transformed or this new kind of morphed Jesus into something or someone else that fit whatever it was they were really after. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher of the 20th century, says that the teaching of the Antichrist is not a denial of Christ, it is a misrepresentation of Christ. It is a teaching that either does something to him or detracts something from him. And so we see that this teaching was not just to out and out deny Jesus, but it was to make Jesus into something that he was not. Now you may say, well, it's a good thing we don't live in the first century anymore because we don't see that in our culture at all. Of course we do. Just, just, no, just take a look the next, co- the next month, all right? Over the Christmas season, notice the presentation of Jesus that you'll receive in popular culture, okay? Even in evangelical culture, right? Look at the Jesus that is presented to you throughout the Christmas season and compare that Jesus to the Jesus of the scriptures. Because listen, unless you're a staunch atheist or agnostic, even folks who are not believers or not regular attenders of a church who don't claim faith in Jesus Christ, man, they'll, they'll concede to you like the idea of Jesus being the reason for the season, Right? But look at the Jesus that's presented to us. Oftentimes, it's this Jesus of kind of like our consumeristic culture, right? That Jesus exists at Christmas time to just kind of bless everything that you're doing and give you everything that you want and make sure that you're always happy and that everybody has everything that they could desire. This kind of consumer Jesus in the Christmas season, right? He's this cosmic kind of Santa Claus who just exists for everybody's happiness and everybody's goodwill. But that's not the Jesus that we see presented in the scripture, right? The Jesus we see presented in the scripture is not all about what can I get, but the Jesus presented in the scripture is the one who calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow after him. 
Some of us in this season like to think about like Jesus, like we love the idea of baby Jesus, right? And I'm not gonna go Ricky Bobby on you here, but we love the idea of like sweet, innocent baby Jesus, right? Laying in the manger. And we love to sing songs about baby Jesus and just the nostalgia of all this. And we neglect to remember that Jesus grows into the lion of Judah who makes demands on my and your life and demands that we serve him, worship him as our Lord, that he doesn't stay in that manger in Bethlehem. You see, what was happening in the early church is they were being presented not with a Jesus of the Gospels, but a Jesus of our own imagination that meets our own agenda And John encourages the believers that through the spirit that is at work in them, he says, test the spirits. See if this is the true Jesus that is being presented to you. And then he gives them some encouragement. He says, as you do this, recognize that the spirit of God is able to discern what is true and what is false. Because he says, you'll be able to discern And the victory, if you hold to the truth and you see through this kind of false presentation of who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do, he says, this won't be because of your own strength or intellect. It won't be because of your own skill. It will come because of the Spirit of God. And in your enduring faithfulness to the true Jesus and the truth of his word, you overcome the evil one as you endure and hold fast to the truth. So John says, what does the Spirit teach us about Jesus? But secondly, he gives us another test. Not only what does the person say about Jesus, but who is listening to these spirits? Not only what does the Spirit say, but who is listening to them? Look at what he says in verse five. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John says that the second test is not only what they say, but who listens. And so first we have confession. Now we have reception. Okay, so let me just put my cards on the table with you. One of the things that I am baffled by, just baffled by, is the popularity of Hallmark Christmas movies. Just astounded. So let's just, we can all be honest here. This is not judgment on my part. I'm just like, this is, a, this is a sociological experiment for me. How many of you in here just love Hallmark Christmas movies? Like how many of you? Like just, there you go. Okay, all right, great, fantastic. Here's what I wanted. If you've seen one Hallmark Christmas movie, You've seen all of them. Like that's like every, you've, you've seen one, you've seen them all. They all have like DJ Tanner from Full House in them, right? And she's ma- engaged to some high powered attorney in some big city somewhere. And she comes back home to her hometown and falls in love with a roofer around Christmas and everything's happy ever after, right? There you go. But there are thousands of Hallmark movies. And I just keep watch. I like watch these things. I'm just like, who, like, how are they making more of these? You know how they're making more of these? Because of you. Because, because there is an audience for them. Like there is a huge audience for them, so much so that they start showing them in like July. I mean, it's like there is an audience for Hallmark Christmas movies. That's how they keep getting made. That's how they keep getting funded. That's how all of these things are happening. 
And John's saying something very similar here. He's saying, listen, these false doctrines, these false gospels, these false Jesuses, they are perpetuated not because people continue to teach them, not only because they're continuing to be taught, but because there is an audience for them. That actually what John says, that in our sinfulness, in our own sin nature, what we desire is not the true Jesus, but some false Jesus of our own making. And John said, if there wasn't an audience for this kind of Jesus, this false teaching would have no traction. And so what kind of Jesus are we looking for? We can see it surmised in the teachings of the false uh, uh, teachers in the early church. There were some who had come into the church and they had taught that, hey, listen, if you'll just confess Jesus, if you'll just say Jesus is Lord and Savior, right? If you'll just pray this prayer and confess Jesus, he'll forgive your sin and you never have to like worry about ever anything ever again. Once you just pray this prayer and confess Jesus, he'll forgive you of your sin and then you can live however you want. Like Jesus doesn't care anymore. Just go live it up. Do whatever you want, however long you want. And at the end of your life, Jesus will say, well done, come on in. There were some who were teaching that. Jesus doesn't care how you live. Just confess him as Lord and then live however you want. But John refutes that. John says that message falls into the hearts and minds of those of us who are always looking for a way to excuse, justify, or minimize our own sinfulness. And so for, when we're trying in our own sinfulness to excuse it, to justify it, to minimize it, to say, how can I love Jesus and do whatever I want? The idea that we can just confess Christ once and then f- do away with him Man, that sounds awesome to us, but John says that's not the true gospel. 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So he says, you can't claim Jesus and then live in your unrighteousness and expect that you believe the true gospel. That's a false gospel. That's a false Jesus. But on the other hand, John says there's another false gospel that is permeating the church. There were some who had come into the church that were teaching that salvation came through Jesus plus their righteousness or some kind of special knowledge that they received. And so it wasn't just about Jesus. It was about Jesus and all the good things that I do. Jesus and this knowledge that I have attained that not everyone else has attained. And this message appealed to those who were seeking to be saved by their own self-righteousness, who wanted to earn it, who couldn't understand this idea of gospel by grace. It's not by grace, it's by what I can do. But John says, if we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And so both these false teachings were perpetuated in the church, not only by the teachers, but by an audience who was hungry to either justify themselves in their unrighteousness or justify themselves by their self-righteousness. And John says, neither of those are the gospel. Neither of those are the gospel that we cannot justify our unrighteousness and we are not justified by our self-righteousness, but only by a substitute righteousness, only by recognizing our need for savior, our inability to save ourselves and the exclusivity of Jesus to meet that need. 
Now, you can go out into our culture and talk about Jesus all you want. Talk about what Jesus has done in your life. Talk about how much you love Jesus. Talk about how great your church is. And listen, by and large, nobody is really gonna press back on that if you talk about what Jesus has done for you. But the minute you say that Jesus makes a claim on them, all of a sudden things get a little dicey. Because it's fine if you want to believe Jesus for you, but as Christians, we make the claim that Jesus actually is Lord, not just of me or of us, but of all. And so what John says here is that this message of the gospel, that we are great sinners in need of a great savior, and that there is only one way of salvation, and it is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. John says, this gospel will not be popular in the world because it goes against the very thing that the world teaches. And this gospel is predicated on our acknowledgement of our need and the exclusivity of Christ to meet that need. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, the word of the cross is folly. It's craziness to those who are perishing. But to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so John says, make sure that the gospel that you are holding to, the gospel that you are proclaiming, It's not a gospel of our own making or our own desire, but it's the gospel of God. The gospel that only by the life, death, and resurrection of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, can we be saved. And so John writes to the church to say, test where the message comes from. Test who is receiving the message. Does the message in the audience testify to the exclusivity of Christ and the hope found in him? Or does it seek to co-opt Jesus for another purpose or agenda? John says that the church has been given the word of God and the spirit of God who are able to help them discern what is true and what is false. And the spirit and the word always work in cooperation with one another. He says the spirit of God will not testify to something that is contrary to the word of God. And the word of God will not speak something that is contrary to the spirit of God. And he says every single believer has these two things at the ready to help them discern what is true and what is false. Because the Spirit of God and the Word of God will exalt the Son of God to the people of God. So how do we apply this message? How do we apply the truth of 1 John 4, 1 through 6? How do we begin here as a church to discern what is true and what is false? I want to give you just three points of application as we close this morning. First, we do so corporately. We do so corporately. You see, John's expectation is that the church would test the spirits corporately, meaning that they would do so together, meaning that it is the responsibility of the church to make sure that what they are being taught or what is being presented to them is in alignment with the truth. And the church is the corporate body of believers, those who gather together weekly, who have been filled by the spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, who gather together weekly for worship. And he says that the corporate body of believers, that they knew the word, 
This early church, they knew the word and they relied on one another to help discern the spirit of truth and the spirit of antichrist. This is why the gathering was so important. Because theology, as we've talked about before, theology, when we think about theology, the study of God, sometimes in our mind, if I were to say to you, what do you think about when you think about theology? Probably what you think about is some seminary professor or some pastor squirreled away in his office somewhere with big stacks of books written in a different language, just kind of writing down all the things that they understand. But that's not theology. Theology is actually best practiced in community. That we actually best practice theology, the study of God, as we, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, come around the word of God, submit to its authority, and discuss the implications and applications it has for our life. And so we've been called to diligently and faithfully study the scriptures together so that we might encourage one another in the truth and discern together what is false. John says that we do this work together in community, corporately. Secondly, John calls the church to do this responsibly. This is not a call for the church to investigate every single belief of every single believer. It's not what he's doing. John's not saying we've got to, you've got to have one or two like heresy hunters in your church, right? who call you every week and want to see what it is that you understand. Like what, what do you really think about eschatology? You know, what do you really think about ecclesiology? What do you really think about soteriology? And somebody's like, I don't really know what any of those things even mean, right? It's like, well, you're out, right? But there are some in the congregation who feel it is their role to be heresy hunters in the church. John says, that's not the role of one or two people in the church. That's the responsibility of all the believers, that we all have a responsibility of being familiar with the scriptures, of being empowered by the spirit, of recognizing and discerning truth and error. That there are some in the congregation, as your pastor, shepherds, who have a higher expectation or higher responsibility for doing so, but that none of us as believers in Christ, members of the church, are exempt from testing the spirits. What John is talking about here is that we have the responsibility of making sure that the main thing stays the main thing. We talk about this in our new members class, the idea of theological triage. You know what triage is? Triage is kind of creating a hierarchy, right? So if you go to the emergency room, two people arrive at the emergency room, you have a triage nurse. One person arrives with a nasty cough, the other person arrives with a gunshot wound. The triage nurse says, we're gonna treat this person with a gunshot wound first, why? because it's a more life-threatening situation. In much the same way, all of our beliefs, we have to do what's called theological triage. There are specific beliefs that are what we would call first-tier theological issues. These are essentials to the Christian faith, that if we disagree about these things, we are disagreeing about what it means to be a Christian, right? So if we were to disagree that God exists as Trinity, three in one, we are disagreeing about the essentials of the Christian faith. If we disagree that Jesus is fully God and fully man, we are disagreeing about the essentials of the Christian faith. If we disagree that Jesus, uh, that salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, we are disagreeing about the essentials of the Christian faith. But not every issue is a first-tier issue. Some are second-tier. Some, actually, we can disagree about as believers in Christ, that we can actually arrive to the Word and have different interpretations of these things while still remaining believers, okay? So one really good one, method and mode of baptism. Some of you may have grown up in another church where they practice baptism in a different way 
way. I would not say that those people who practice baptism in a different way are not believers. I would just say that they've not interpreted the scriptures in the way that I would interpret the scriptures. I have good friends who disagree on this point with me that I believe I'm going to see one day in the kingdom of God. But for right now, that kind of second tier issue causes some distinction between how we would gather together for worship. And then there are third tier issues. Third tier issues are just kind of really preferential things. Things that we can disagree on, things that we probably would all disagree on in this room in some form or fashion. John says the goal is not to make sure that everybody lines up with you on all three things. He says the goal is to make sure that we keep the main things the main thing. There's an old post-Reformation saying that says in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Finally, not only should we do these things corporately and responsibly, we should do them consistently. This should be an ongoing process in the life of the church. Each week as we gather together, we should seek to discern whether or not what we are being presented with aligns itself with the truth. So we ask the question, does this align with the scriptures? Is what I'm being taught helping me to grow in my knowledge of and love for Jesus? Now, certainly it is my responsibility and our other pastor's responsibility to make sure that what is taught to you on Sunday morning from the pulpit and in our connect groups aligns with the scripture. But listen, that doesn't let you off the hook. This is a part of what it means to be a meaningful member of the body of Christ. Because just as it is our responsibility to make sure that what is being taught from the stage aligns with the scripture, so too it is your responsibility to know the scriptures well enough to make sure what is being taught from the stage aligns with the truth. And so we need one another in this environment. This is not just an environment for you to come in and sit down and cross your arms and go, okay, preacher, feed me. That's a consumeristic idea of what this worship gathering is about, that this 30 minutes or 40 minutes or 42 minutes right now is really aimed at making sure that you get fed and you're entertained and you're inspired and you're challenged. And if I don't do that or one of our pastors doesn't do that, then we'll go find another church where we can do that. No, no, no. It's your responsibility right now as you sit, as you hear the word of God proclaimed to go, does this align with what I see in the scriptures? Does this align with the spirit of truth? And if it does, then praise God. Then let's affirm that the word of God was proclaimed over us this morning, that the word of God is working to transform the people of God into the image of the Son of God. But if not, if something other than the word was proclaimed, if something other than Jesus was offered to us as a means of salvation, then we should have real issue with that. You see, we need one another in the church to ensure that we are holding fast to the truth of the gospel and that as we seek to be a church committed to the great commandment and the great commission, my prayer is that we, as the people of God, would covenant together weekly to hold fast to the word of God by the spirit of God for the glory of God alone. It is our responsibility, all of ours, to test the Spirit, to see whether or not what is being presented to us is of and from our Savior.